And if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll take a look at a few passages in those opening chapters of 1 Corinthians in just a bit. And at the end of our first service, I mentioned some things that are coming up. There were a couple of things that I did not mention that are in your program. So let me just mention uh, two of them. One is on Saturday the 21st, so one week from this Saturday, is our next Newcomer's Brunch at our house. And as that name suggests, it's for those who are newcomers. Uh, It really means those who have never been to a brunch. You may have been here for a good while and the scheduling hasn't worked out for you to come to our house for one of the brunches. So if you've never been to one, we would love to have you a week from Saturday, 10 a.m., at our place. So if uh, you fit in that category, go to the information center, let them know you'd like to register for that. They have an invitation that has our address and phone number on it and a reminder of the time, 10 a.m. to about noon. It's just a time of fellowship together uh, around a a good brunch that my wife makes. Uh, No program. I'm not teaching anything, but it's a chance for us to get to know you and you us. And then we'll try to answer any questions you might have, if you have any. Otherwise, we'll just enjoy the time together and the uh, brunch together. But that's one week from Saturday, the uh, 21st. And then the other uh, event is on April the 4th, is the uh, Easter egg hunt. Isn't that right? April the 4th, I think. And that's Saturday the uh, 4th. And that's in your program as well. Uh, But we need some help for that. We need some volunteers for that. Uh, and a a number of things for which we could use some help. So if you'd be willing to make yourself available for a couple of hours on that Saturday, April the 4th, then give your name at the Information Center, and, uh, and they'll tell you what they have in mind for the various tasks that need to be done. Last item before we get into our lesson today, and that is, again, the Living Last Supper. That's what this uh, monstrous stage is about. And uh, we look forward to that. It's, uh, a lot of work has gone into it, uh, and I think it's going to be a very effective and, uh, and uh, uh, profound evening for us, uh, especially for those who don't know the Lord and a time for you to invite uh, them to come, either Saturday night, the 21st, or Sunday evening, the uh, 22nd, 6 o'clock, each of, those, each of those nights. Now, for that, at the end, we're going to have dessert afterwards, each of those nights. And we've got some folks who have volunteered to help with the desserts, but we need more desserts. And Hal has a, a registration form there that he's going to pass around. All right, I was not around last uh, Sunday because my wife and I were out of town celebrating our, our 30th, but the two weeks prior to our leaving, we were looking at uh, a series that I titled The Story of Your Life. And the idea over those two weeks and now for uh, a few weeks going forward is for each of us to consider who we are, how God has made us, but then what we have become as well by virtue of the influence of others around us. Consider who we are in the story of our lives so that we can have an accurate view of where we are and who we are so that we can see what needs to be changed in order to become like Christ. Now, Why do I want to become like Christ? Why should you want to become like Christ? Because that is the goal of human history, that God does all that he does for his glory, and God's glory is the display of his character. And in making humanity, God made people uniquely in his image in order for them to display his character, what he is like, back to them. 
And you find that motif, you find that theme of the image of God being reflected back to God from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end and in between. So God made us to reflect what he is like back to him, made in his image. We alone among his creatures have that quality. But that image has been distorted, has been broken. The mirrors that we were made to be to reflect God back to him in the way he thinks, in the way he talks, in the way he acts, that's what we should think and talk and act like. But that's been broken because of sin. And the entrance of sin means that we still bear the image of God, but now the image is distorted. Because instead of our orientation being exclusively vertical, now our orientation is horizontal. Now our orientation is toward us and toward others rather than first toward God. And God is then doing this reclamation project. He is repairing these broken mirrors so that we are reoriented toward him. That's why when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Remember, he said, it is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your heart. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But notice, he, he numbers them. He ranks them first and second. First, it's God. Then it's loving neighbor as yourself. But we have loving ourselves, concerning ourselves with others before God. That's been inversed because of the entrance of sin into God's otherwise good world. So God made us to reflect him back to him. And now God is remaking those of us who are in Christ to be conformed to the image of Christ, to become like what we were made to be. Now, that's a change process. That means that in the course of your life and my life, I am to be regularly changing, becoming more like Christ. And I shared with you a few weeks ago when we started this series, my lament that so few people who have been Christians for many, many years, attend church weekly and yearly for years, people who fit into that category change so little. And part of the reason we change so little is because we don't think change is necessary. We think that heaven is the only goal, and if I'm saved, if I've come to Christ, then I've been promised heaven, so the gig is up on that, so why do I need to change? Why do I need to worry about it? Or if we, don't th we either don't think it's necessary, or if we do think it's necessary, we don't think it's possible. And part of the reason we don't think it's possible is because we see so few people changing. And we even say things like, you know, it's just the way I am, and you can't teach old dogs new tricks, and you're just going to have to deal with how I am. Well, God says, no, you need to see yourself in the mirror. We need to see ourselves in the mirror of God's Word and come to that mirror and then ask ourselves, how now do I need to move from where I am to where I need to be in conformity to the image of Jesus? Now, that's what this series is about, that. helping us see ourselves as we are so that we then can develop a roadmap for where it is that we need to go. Originally, God and man and their environment were one. But God and man became separated because of the entrance of sin. That's why the Bible says, In the day you eat of this forbidden fruit of this one tree in the midst of the garden, you will surely die. It didn't mean they physically died. They didn't, but rather that they would be separated. That's what death is in the Bible. They would be separated from God. And in his isolation, man no longer sees life with reference to God, 
Coram Deo, in the presence of God, every moment of every day, but he sees a limited view. We see our immediate needs and our immediate situations. And without reference to God, having the vertical orientation as primary, without that, everything becomes different. Pursuits and relationships are to get by and to make ends meet without regard to the transcendent, without regard to God. We were made for God, but we now live for ourselves. And all of us comes into the world with this perspective, this selfish, self-focused perspective, and we pursue it. We pursue it for years before we are regenerated, before we are given spiritual life. And meanwhile, during those years, even as children growing up in our homes and then going to school, in all of those environments, we're affected by people around us, all of whom are in precisely the same boat. So I come into the world with this natural disposition to focus upon myself, to have a horizontal orientation rather than an orientation toward God, and then I hang out with people who have that same thing. And I'm affected then by what I am, but I'm also affected by what other people are. We come into the world as sinners, separated from God, and over the years we are influenced by other sinners, and all of that makes us what we are. Relationships that God has given for us to aid each other in becoming more like Him actually become deterrents to our becoming like Him. We begin to pick up the traits and learn things that are modeled before us by our parents, by our co-workers, by our schoolmates. So to know who I am, I need to trace the story of my life to get an accurate picture. I am and you are a sinner by both nature and nurture. But thankfully, that's not all we are. I mean, that's all ugly and black. It's all true, and it's true of all of us. But God says we are people that are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I said two weeks ago when we were together that God has made each of us with unique gifts and abilities. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, the Bible says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. We are his workmanship. The Greek word translated workmanship is poema. We are God's poem. Some translations, God's craftsmanship, God's work of art, God's tapestry. So we are these sinners now that are these broken reflections of God, affected by our nature, affected by our nurture, and we bring that along with these marvelous things that God says about us, fearfully and wonderfully made, tapestry, craftsmanship, unique abilities and gifts, and we bring all of that into every endeavor that we pursue, every relationship that we're engaged in. Now here's what that, some of what that means. I said a couple of weeks ago, it means that we use our God-given ability, and all of us have these God-given abilities. But because of sin, we use those God-given abilities to get what we want. And we refuse to use our God-given abilities if we don't get what we want. So many of us find ourselves in our individual lives and then in the lives to which we are connected, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, and so on, our neighborhoods. We find ourselves as, as using the abilities that we have to get what we want. Or 
refusing to use what God has given us in protest if we don't get what we want. In other words, I said two weeks ago, sin is using power to get what I want or protesting when I don't. That's one good way to think of what sin is. It's using the power that God has given me in these gifts and abilities, but misappropriating it rather than using it for God's purposes, using it for my own ends. Now, if you think of it that way, think about how you are empowered. You're empowered by these gifts and abilities you have. And each of us have different ones. We're, we have a different personal profile. So mine's different than yours. So I have gifts and abilities, but those gifts and abilities, I will have a natural sinful tendency to use those for my own ends to get what I want. So one of my God-given abilities is to yap, talk. So that's why I'm here, yapping, talking. So God gives you the ability to talk. Okay. Well, one great way to do that would be to talk on behalf of God. To use your mouth, to use your tongue to speak God's truth. And thankfully, that's what God has called and is calling me to to do. But I regularly have the temptation to use that very same God-given ability for my own ends. If you cross swords with me verbally, be careful. Pack a lunch. Now, I say that it's sort of humorous, but the truth of the matter is that's a truth about me that I have to know and be aware of about me, that I can use what God gave me, this now empowerment that God has given me, this ability that God has given me, and rather than use it for his ends, use it for my own ends. This reared its head early on in our marriage. When Kim and I would have a, we never have arguments. We have uh, what one guy called marital adjustment sessions. (laughs) So when we would have a marital adjustment session, I would resort to the power that I have. What power do I have? It It was verbal power. And overpower my wife with my words. And the truth is then, by doing that, I can win the, win the argument. It doesn't mean I was right. It just means I'll get the last word because she's finally sick of me yapping about it. Now, this is all fleshly. This is all carnal. This is all sinful. And this is all stuff that I have to see about myself. This is part of the profile that is Ken. This is all part of the profile that is the story of my life. This is how God has made me, but this is how sin distorts the way God has made me. Now, I said two weeks ago that this means that we all sin in different ways. We're all pursuing the same thing, using the power, the ability, the gifts that God has given us to get what we want or pouting and protesting when we don't, refusing to use those then for God and the benefit of others. And it means since we're all made differently, we all have this different empowerment that we will sin in particular ways, different ways. I will tend to sin in the way I described to you and others, but that's one. But other people will sin differently. They don't have the gift of gab. They're not going to talk a lot. I even said two weeks ago that gender will play a role in how we pursue what we want because men and women generally have different power to exert. 
So men might try to overpower, either by their words or by being physically intimidating. Women don't generally have that at their disposal, but they might be able to use, use other things, withhold things. Or use their words to manipulate, to get things the way they want. To deceive, to only tell you part of the story, not the whole story, in order to move it in the direction that you want it to go. I see this regularly, not in my home. But I see this regularly from professing Christian people. Our nature means that we pursue what we want in particular ways according to the way I'm wired, the way you're wired. And our nurture means we pursue what we want in other particular ways. What I've seen nurtured, modeled before me in my home by classmates. And you're the product, I'm the product of all that. And you're carrying around and I'm carrying around that baggage all the time. Now, everything I just said is absolutely true for every last one of us. So now here's the question for us. Are we going to be willing to face it? Can you face who you are? Are you willing to do an honest evaluation of what you have become? Both by nature and by nurture. And so I'm calling this session, Let's Face It. You've got to face the kind of stuff that I've had to face about myself. God gives me this ability, but I can easily rewire it to be used for my own ends. You do the same thing. And you've been doing the same thing for years, and you have learned how to do those kinds of things from people that have modeled that in front of you. So let's face it, but we won't be able to face it if we place too much value in what we think about ourselves and what other people think about us. Hear this. You'll never be able to face what you are and what you have become in the story of your life. You'll never be able to face it squarely. If you place an overvalue upon your own view of yourself and the view of others toward you. And the truth of the matter is most of us, forget most of us, all of us carry that around. We like to think of ourselves in particular ways, and we don't want that image of ourselves to be shattered. We want others to think of us in a particular way, and we don't want that image that they have of us to be shattered. And so, in this third session, I've asked you to look at 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians. Because in 1 Corinthians, we're going to see someone in the life of Paul who was able and willing to do what most of us have never even considered doing. Most of us have never even considered the stuff I've been talking about in these prior two sessions, let alone actually putting it into action. And then having heard what I've been saying these last few weeks, most of us value our view of ourselves and how others view us so much that we're unwilling to face it. But Paul presents a dramatically, radically different approach toward himself. And it's one that you and I must adopt if we are going to be involved in the change process and becoming more like Jesus. 
We are all naturally concerned with what others think of us. Because since the entrance of sin, our attention has been moved horizontally rather than vertically, as I've said. People, rather than being helpers that point me to God, hear this, are now competitors for, my atten- for attention. People, rather than being what we were made to be for each other, aids, helpers to point us toward God, we now are competitors. Competitors in our marriages, in all of the relationships that we find ourselves in, we easily descend into this competition. We, and the fact that we care what people think is seen in the fact that we are often thinking about what they think of us. Let me say that again. The fact that we all care too much about what other people think is seen in the fact that we find ourselves often thinking about what they think of us. Now, let's let's just be, let's face it. That's what I'm telling you to do in this set. Face it. That's what you do. That's what I do. So, if I don't learn this, and I'm having to learn it every day, if I don't learn this, then I can, I can worry about sitting in that front row, walking up on this platform, and saying, you may be seated, and then going, you know, they're already seated. You're an idiot. <laughs> Which I did in the first hour. Now, here's one of the things that helps me greatly. I've come to the conclusion a long time ago, yep, you're an idiot. And you, Brown, are perfectly capable of doing idiotic things. You are perfectly capable of saying idiotic things. The sooner you learn that, the less you'll obsess over the fact that you do stuff that you're perfectly capable of doing. But if you don't learn that, and it's taken me years, and I still have to be retaught it all the time, but if you don't learn that, you'll just be, oh, what an idiot, I can't believe I said that. You, you won't want to say stuff in front of people for fear of saying the wrong thing. And so instead of your relationships with others and your ability to communicate being used for the benefit of the glory of God and others, instead of it being used for that, you'll clam up because I'm just shy, I'm afraid I'll say the wrong thing. We care about what people think of us, and you know that because you find yourself thinking about what they're thinking of you. We're self-conscious, for example, when we walk into a room. Uh, Let's just be, okay, let's face it. You walk into a restaurant, and you're like fidgeting with your hands, and you're, you know, kind of pulling your coat together, and you're just wondering who all's looking at you. Now, let me tell you who's all looking at you. Nobody. I hate to devastate you, but no one cares that you walked into that restaurant. And this came home to me several years ago when a pastor friend of mine told me about a a pastor friend of his. And this pastor friend said, hey, tell me, what are other guys in fundamentalism saying about me? And this friend said, "Uh, nobody talks about you. Now, do you see what this pastor was assuming? People are thinking about me. Now, why do we think people are thinking about us? Because we're thinking about us. The number one object of our attention most of the time is us. 
how we view ourselves and how we're viewed by others. Now, let me quote that great theologian, Madonna, in this regard. Here's an excerpt from an interview with Madonna in Vogue magazine some time ago where she was talking about her career. This is what she says. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Now, we might say, well, she's neurotic. I mean, she's got lots of other issues. But the truth of the matter is, she knows herself better than most of us know ourselves. Every time she accomplishes something, these are the kinds of thoughts she has. Now I have got the verdict that I am somebody, but the next day I realize that unless I keep going, I'm not. My ego can't be satisfied. My sense of self, my desire for self-worth, my need to be sure I'm somebody, it's not fulfilled. I keep thinking I have have it won from what people have said about me and what the magazines and the newspapers have written, but the next day I have to go and look somewhere else. Why? Because the ego is insatiable. It's a black hole, and as long as you are a people pleaser, you will be involved in that black hole rather than first and foremost, a God-pleaser. Now, why have I had you come to 1 Corinthians then? Here's why. Because the 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians are a letter that Paul wrote to the church in the city of Corinth, thus the name, and it's his first of two letters. So 1 Corinthians to that church. And as you read those 16 chapters, here's what you'll find about that church. They were a wreck, a real mess. If I ever want to feel better about CBC, I just read 1 Corinthians. And to my amazement, every now and then, I'll see a van, a church van, and it'll have the name of the church on the side, and it'll be Corinthian Baptist Church. And I'm thinking, of all the things you want to name a church, it ain't these guys. Now, why? What what were their problems? Well, here were some of their problems. Chapter 1 and verse 10 tells us, chapter 1 and verse 10 tells us, excuse me, verse 11, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. And now Paul, who's writing this to them, says, I've had these people from the household of Chloe tell me about these divisions that you all have. And these divisions are showing up in you exalting particular persons and personalities. So this is my guy, and you've got these these parties, these factions within the church, based upon who your favorite guy is. And now Paul is going to spend the next few chapters correcting that. He's going to tell them that the gospel is not wisdom from the world. In fact, the gospel is foolishness to the world. But in the gospel, what is foolish to the world becomes wisdom to us because the gospel transforms us. And that includes transforming the way we see people. So no longer should we view people 
the way the world does. This is my guy. This is my favorite preacher. This is my favorite whatever it is. Paul says we are simply servants for Christ's sake. But then when he comes to chapter 4, he begins to hone in on himself. In those first few chapters, he's correcting this whole notion that we should adopt a worldly approach to how we see people, including Christian teachers and, and preachers. And he says at the end of chapter 3, verse 21, So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are in Christ, and Christ is of God. And then he comes to chapter 4, and then he says, So then, men ought, verse 1, to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. So in verses 1 and 2, he reminds them that he's simply a servant, a minister, and he has a job to do. But then he tells them that with regard to that role, he cares very little if he's judged by them or any human court. Look at verses 3 and 4. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, he's trying to correct people who are all horizontally oriented. They're looking at other people in a worldly way. And Paul is trying to say the gospel transforms the way we view others. And we're going to see in a minute, including the way we view ourselves. It transforms that. Now, how does, he, how does it do that? He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. And the word judge here is the same meaning as the word verdict. It's the thing that Madonna craves. That elusive verdict from other people. That stamp of approval from other people. And Paul's saying that my identity is not tied up in other people's opinion of me. And so how do we get to the point where we're not controlled by what people think about us? How do you get there? Now, here's what most people would say. Most people would say, look, you've got to get to the point where you cop an attitude. Where you cop an attitude that says, who cares what everybody else thinks? I am what I am, just deal with it. So I don't care what you think. The only thing that really matters is what I think of myself. And in fact, if you were to go to a secular counselor, that's precisely what you would be told. Hey, what really matters is what you think of you. And by the way, let me remind you of how wonderful you are. And so if people are saying negative things about you, here's the way to counteract that. One, remind yourself of really what a hero you are. And then secondly, say, who cares about you all? You're all idiots anyway. Who cares what you guys think? What really matters is what I think. And Paul's answer to someone who would pursue that, which is what many, many, many people pursue. Paul's answer to people who would pursue that is this. That's a trap. And I'm not going to get caught up in that trap because he doesn't leave it at verse 3 when he says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. I care very little what verdict other people have about me. He goes on in verse 4 to say, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. I do not even judge myself, he says. 
Now, how does a guy come to the point that he can do that? That he can say, on the one hand, it's not what other people think about me. And in fact, contrary to what secular psychology would tell you, all right, if it's not what other people think about, it's, it's, if you don't want to be trapped into what other people think about you, then devalue what they think about you. Just dismiss it. What really matters is what you think about you. But Paul says, no, it's not either of those. It's not what they think, and it's also not what I think. How do you get to a point when you do that? And he says this in verse 4, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, the word translated innocent is the same word that is translated in, in your Bible elsewhere as justified. My conscience is clear, but I don't justify myself. It is the Lord who justifies me. So how do you and I ever get to the point where we cannot be not only not consumed, not concerned about what other people think and not even be concerned about what we think, but rather be totally immersed in what God thinks. How can we do that? It is when our sins, our failures, do not connect themselves to our identity. Let me say that again. It's when our sins and our failures are no longer connected to our identity. When my identity is no longer found in my screw-ups, in my sins, in my failures, but rather my identity is found in my relationship to Christ, then and only then can I say, I'm not motivated I'm not harmed by what other people say. And I don't even think about myself a whole lot. What I think about a lot, Paul would tell us, is Christ. And the fact that in Christ I find my identity, and the fact that in Christ I know who I truly am. And because I know who I truly am in Christ, now hear this, I can face what I have become. My identity in Christ, let me remind you, is if you have come to him, you are adopted into his family and your sin has been completely covered past, present, and future. Thanks be to God. That's the good news of the gospel. And therefore, there ain't no failure, no sin, no foible, no flaw, nothing in you that can ever shake that security that you have in Christ. And if you are rock solid, focused upon that, then the opinions of others and even your own opinion about yourself will not be the most important thing. The answer for you will then not be, hey, think less of yourself. The answer for you will be this, think of yourself less. The Bible's answer is not think less of yourself. The Bible's answer is think of yourself less. Remember how I started out? We're all thinking about ourselves. 
And we all think other people are thinking about us. And we really care about what we think about ourselves and what other people think about us. And Paul says, I don't care about either one. Because the verdict that really matters is the justification that I have received from God. And once I have that security, now I can live in that secure way. So here's a test for you as to whether or not you have that kind of security that Paul's talking about. How do you handle criticism? If someone criticizes a person who, is, who puts too much value in their view of themselves or how others view them, if you're someone in that situation, when you are criticized, what will you do? You will immediately become defensive, won't you? You'll immediately want to impugn the, the motives of the person who's criticizing you. Who are you? Who do you think you are? How are you better than me? But the person who's secure in Christ, who is self-forgetful, is completely opposite that. When someone whose ego is not puffed up, but rather is filled up, when that kind of person gets criticism, it doesn't devastate them. They'll look at it as an opportunity to change. Now, that sounds idealistic to us. Is there any person who's really like that? But in fact, the Apostle Paul had become that very kind of person. Here was a guy who could have been very easily puffed up about himself, could have very easily had a high view of himself. It is without doubt the case that Paul is one of the top five or ten most influential people in the history of the world. That's not an overstatement. This was a man of tremendous abilities, Tremendous intellect. And yet here's a guy who could say of himself, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. He could face it. And when he was criticized, he could use as an opportunity for him to see himself more clearly, not become defensive, but rather to grow in Christ. Why? Because the, hear this, the verdict that matters has already been rendered. The verdict that matters is the one that God has rendered upon you and your life in Jesus. And to the extent that you and I cannot handle viewing ourselves in the mirror or having others help us view ourselves in the mirror, to the extent that that's the case with us, We are not secure in our identity in Jesus. The ultimate verdict has been rendered. And hear this, in the words of Tim Keller, it's only in the gospel that you get the verdict before the performance. You see, God has given his verdict on you because he's viewing you through Jesus. He's rendered the verdict, and yet here you are still getting up every day, doing your stuff, messing up, being who you are, you know, saying stupid stuff. That's what we do, and yet the ultimate verdict has been rendered on my life. And therefore, how I view myself should not be a matter of my performance, my performance in what God has called me to do. It should not be that. 
but rather I can confidently now move forward in what God has called me to do. Because my self-identity is not tied up into what I think about myself or what others think about me. It's the fact that the verdict has been rendered on my life by the person and work of Jesus. Now I can move forward with confidence. Now someone can criticize me and I don't fall apart. And if they don't, you know, use epithets and all kinds of stuff like that. So if you come and criticize me, don't say, you know, you said you were an idiot. I happen to agree with that. And let me, tell, let me count the ways. Don't do that, okay? But seriously, if you, if you come and you say, you know, you're doing this and I think you could do this better, that shouldn't devastate me. I should look at that as an opportunity to grow in Christ-likeness. So I ask you, where are you? The story of your life is the story of what you are naturally and by nurture. Have you ever done an inventory of that? Are you able to do an inventory of that because you're secure in Christ? Are you able to squarely look in the mirror and see who you are and what you have become and say, thank you, Lord, for showing me this? Because now I can, in my experience, become what you have already declared me to be in my position before you. So thank you for showing me this. Thank you for these weeks that we're spending in a series called The Story of My Life. So that I can be challenged to see myself as I really am, so that I can become what I've been called to be in Christ. Dear friends, what a marvelous thing it would be if we had a congregation of people who were willing to see themselves squarely in the mirror of God's word. Stop competing with one another for approval. Stop tearing one another down so that we will then, in effect, elevate ourselves. A vertical orientation replacing the primary horizontal orientation of our lives. What a marvelous thing that would be for you in your individual life and us in the corporate life of our church. So, over the next few weeks now, I've tried to tell you that it's possible for you to do this kind of evaluation. Paul did it for himself. It's possible for you to face it. But now if you buy that, if you buy the necessity of facing who you are, now we want to create a template of sorts to say here are the kinds of things you need to find out about yourself. What, have I, what am I by nature? What have I become by nurture? And are you willing to look at that painfully sometimes in the mirror in order to become more Christ-like? If you're secure in Jesus, you can do it. And over the next few weeks, I'm going to offer you that template, categories of things for you to look at in your life and even invite others to look into your life to help you see who you are and what you have become so that you can take the next step toward Christ-likeness. We'll continue that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to think about what you have made us to be and now called us out of the world to become. Lord, you made us in your image. Originally, we perfectly reflected that. But now because of sin, the image is distorted. Now because of sin, rather than being oriented toward you, we are oriented toward ourselves and 
and toward others and what they think of us and the judgments they make about us and that we make about them. And we become competitors instead of helpers. Lord, help us to recognize that truth. It's true of me. It's true of each of us here. Help us to be willing to think about then, Lord, how we came into this world naturally. The gifts and abilities that you gave us and how we tend to misappropriate those for our own ends. Help us to see what we are naturally and what we have become by nurture, the environment that you sovereignly have placed us in, the family that we were born into, the traits then that we saw there and modeled there that we have carried with us, every last one of us, have carried those traits with us in some way or shape. Help us, Lord, to be able to evaluate that. Lord, we can do it. But we can do it because the ultimate verdict has been rendered. And we thank you that the uniqueness, the beauty of the gospel is, as our brother Keller has said, that the verdict is rendered before the performance. That you don't say to us, do this and do it well enough, and then I'll let you know. But rather, you have rendered the verdict on us in Jesus. And out of that security and that identity, now I can look at myself squarely. I can face it. Help us to begin doing that this week. Oh, Holy Spirit, we ask you to move upon our minds and hearts so that this week when we find ourselves talking in particular ways, thinking in particular ways, manipulating, deceiving, overpowering, whatever it is that has become characteristic of us, Holy Spirit, tweak our hearts, convict us so that we begin to see that. And thank you. Breathe a prayer of thanks to you, Lord, for showing me how I sin in unique ways so that I can mortify that sin and become like Jesus. We ask you to grant us safety this week and to bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.